We call him Christ, his human name, Jesus. But in prophetic form, he's called the Son of Man. He's called the Branch. He's called uh, the Messiah. He's called, uh, what are some others that just off the top of your head that you, uh, anyway, he's, ta- he's called the King. Um, he's, he's called a prophet in the Old Testament. So you see this figure prominent and all these different things that the prophets say about this particular person who is prophesied to come and to be a king. And then you also see a kingdom and characteristics of a kingdom. Now, I know that when we're, we're studying, that our study is on the second coming of Christ. And I know that's a very broad topic, but the reason I want to cover this is because it really sets the stage for what the second coming is all about. And I, I think it's important for us to understand. So what are the things that we've, we've covered so far in the prophets? Here's what we've seen. We've seen that uh, in the reference to this person, this figure that is prophesied, and in this kingdom that's prophesied, we've seen that during this time there will be a regathering of Israel in the land of Israel. We see that Israel will dwell in their land and they will dwell in that land in perpetuity. Um, we got, the, the Bible mentions that God will guide Israel as a shepherd. Uh, there's a mention of the, the righteous uh, nature of the kingdom. It'll be a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Um, The Bible says that all nations, and we read this ourselves last week, all nations will know the Lord and all nations will be subordinate to His kingdom. Uh, We've seen the effect upon nature in His kingdom and how that, uh, you know, that we read about how the, the lion lies down with the lamb, right? Right? Wrong. What lies down with the lamb? Come on now, were you paying attention last week? The wolf lies down with the lamb, and the lion lies down with the the ox, the ox or the bear, calf. It's one. It's it's the same bovine type of animal, ox, calf. So we we also saw that Israel will cease to have enemies. Uh, there there will be judgment. Um, We also saw that the king would come from the line of David. That's repeated over and over. And finally, we saw that Christ's kingdom, this promised kingdom will extend to the whole earth. All right, so we're going to be in Ezekiel uh, 34, rather. And we're going to just keep on walking through the Old Testament here. But let's pray first, ask the Lord to bless our lesson today. Father, we so thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Lord, we, we we just... uh, commend this time to you, and we uh, we ask you to uh, look upon this time as we focus on your word. Lord, Lord, first, please help us to focus and to set our attention and hearts and affections upon what you're, you're saying here. I pray that you, through your spirit, would teach each and, each and every one of us uh, not only the uh, theological things, but also the practical things, that you would help these uh, truths to be sure and steadfast in our hearts, and that the realities of these things would affect our life. And we know that's the way you do things. And so that's why we're studying your word, Lord. We want to know you better and know what you have planned. And uh, we pray you just give us understanding. Bless each and every person that's here. and Those that that can't be here, bless them as well as they listen. And give us understanding and wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ezekiel 34, verse number 20. 
Ezekiel 34, verse number 20. Now, Ezekiel prophesied during the time of the captivity. And that's found in Ezekiel chapter 1. He was a part of the captivity, okay? He was a part of the captivity. So Ezekiel, as far as we know, I could be wrong. I might be forgetting a verse that I should be remembering, but I don't think Ezekiel ever went back to Israel. He was a, a part of the captivity and remained there. Ezekiel 34, verse 20. So remember, the time period matters. The king, Listen, the kingdom of Israel, unlike Jeremiah, the kingdom of Israel and Judah is gone. The temple is flattened. It's no longer there. This is important because what, when we know the time period, once again, we can rule out some of the, these ideas that these you know, commentators and interpreters throw out about, well, this is referring to that, this is referring to this. You can rule some of that stuff out. And, uh, and I, I'll try to remember to mention it, but some of this stuff touches on some things that are important for us to know about such things such as amillennialism which is the idea that there is no millennium. Ah, no, millennium, millennialism, which means that's the idea that there is no 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. It's spiritual. And so this all touches on those things. All right, verse 20. The Bible says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because ye have thrust with side and with shoulder, and pushed all the diseased with your horns, till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. Now, as, as, you, as you read this, remember, Ezekiel's in the captivity. This is during the 70 years of capti- captivity, so it might be natural to think, and sometimes it's even true, when you read it, it might be natural to think that this is referring to the time that God regathers Israel during the time of Ezra, right, to bring the remnant back to Jerusalem. But as you keep reading, you realize, although that might have relationship to the, the return in Ezra's time, it goes far beyond that because the descriptions given do not match what we read in Ezra. It extends further. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 22 of 23. And I will set up one shepherd over them. You see what I mean? That can't apply to Ezra. If you keep reading, it says, And they shall no more be a prey. I'm sorry. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. All right, stop. During Ezra's time, was David ever a shepherd or a prince, that is, a king, over Israel? No. Why not? (laughs) Imagine that. David's dead. So, David, not this David. This David is alive. So, here's the question. If David is dead and therefore he can't be the one, uh, he can't be a, a shepherd and a prince over Israel during Ezra's time, how can he be, because it says it'll be David will be a prince over them, how can he be a prince over them and a shepherd over Israel later? I'll tell you what an amillennialist will tell you. 
A person who does not believe in the literal reign of Christ on the earth in the future, what they do is they take this verse and they interpret it spiritually. In other words, they don't take it at face value. They, they say, well, it's not referring to David. It's actually referring to Christ because Christ is the son of David. But the problem with that is it doesn't say that. It says David. So the natural question is, how is David going to be a king, a prince, a shepherd over Israel in the future? There's a very simple answer, and you all know it. He'll be alive. David will be resurrected, just like you will be resurrected, and I will be resurrected. So there are answers to these questions, but we're getting sidetracked. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 25, And I will make, a, make, make uh, with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. Now notice that. And they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. This is the effect upon nature, okay? You sleep in the woods, you don't have to worry about mountain lions coming dragging you away like our family was watching some show about mountain lions ripping people's faces off and stuff. It was terrible. But that won't happen. Verse 26, And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in, in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. There's where that, that verse comes from. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of the, their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. Again, the effect upon nature, the fruit of the field is at its full potential, right? There are no enemies that trouble Israel anymore. All right? This is a description not of anything that has happened up to our day. Right? This is a description of something yet future. Okay? Verse 29, I will raise up for them a plant of renown. Key word is plant, because you're going to see that in a minute. A plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and, they, and, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God, and ye, are my, and ye my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. This is a description. This is, again, there's a figure, a person being described in the prophets, and then there's a kingdom. This is a description of the kingdom. Israel's back in her land. Again, if there's no reason to change, to, to interpret the Bible figuratively, in other words, there's one reason to, to interpret the Bible figuratively, and that is if God interprets it figuratively. And He doesn't. Israel will be back in her land, no enemies, the land will prosper, and David will be a prince among them. Okay? Now let's turn, let's turn to chapter 37, verse 21. Chapter 37, verse 21 says this. <clears throat> and say unto them, 
Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. Again, I'm, I'm just reading through this because I want you to see the repetitiveness of these statements. This happens over and over. This is what God promised Israel. This is part of this promised future. Okay? And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king unto them all. And they shall uh, be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, once again, my servant shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. Notice the extent, forever. Okay? And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. This is the first mention of a temple. Okay? So in this kingdom that is being described in a bunch of different ways, God says, there's going to be a temple in the middle, in the midst of them. There's going to be a temple. You're going to see it again in a minute. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. So Israel's regathered into her land. The kingdom is unified, not divided. There will be a king. David is mentioned as a king. Israel's heart is turned to the Lord. He cleanses them. So this is basically, again, a description of a very righteous kingdom that's led by God himself and in which David is the king. And in this kingdom is a temple. Now, this is what, what we've covered so far is what we describe as the hope of Israel. Like the, 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 the hope that was in the mind and in the heart and in the eye of Israel, even throughout the period of Ezra and Nehemiah and throughout the silent years after they returned, the remnant returned to Jerusalem. This is what they were hoping for. This is what they had read in the Old Testament. They read about this figure, this king, and they read about this kingdom. And so when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem, this is the state of mind of the people of Israel. Because by that time, Israel was under the dominion of Rome. And they were not happy about it. And you can see, the Bible doesn't directly address that and state it, Outright, but you can definitely see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts, that that relationship was not friendly between the Jews and the Roman authorities. 
But this is what Israel was hoping for. This is what Israel was hoping for. They were hoping for a king to come with a kingdom of righteousness and glory. All right? Now let's go on to Daniel, chapter 2. Next book over. Daniel 2, verse 31. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He's the king of Babylon. Daniel is, remember, the time period. Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel is part of the captivity. He is in the same time, roughly the same time as Ezekiel. Probably, I think, maybe a little bit earlier than Ezekiel, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. But anyhow, Daniel's in the captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is, has a dream, and he sees these four images, statues, if you will. Or he sees a statue made of four different materials is what he sees. Okay? And so he wants to know the interpretation. Look down at verse number 31. Daniel comes to give him the interpretation. Verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, behold, a great image, this, uh, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Now look at verse 34. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were, iron, were, were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the earth, the whole earth. So you picture this image, a stone. You know, I picture it kind of rolling down a hill maybe and smashing into this image, and the image just completely crumbles. But this stone becomes a mountain in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the mountain, it, it fills the entire earth. So what is the interpretation? Daniel tells us, verse 44. I'm not interested in the gold and the silver and all, all those things. Those are the, the various kingdoms that are prophesied, Babylon and then Media Persia and Greece and then finally Rome. What I'm interested in is this stone because this stone is a description of this kingdom once again. Look what it says, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron and the brass and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation sure. So the stone, according to verse 44, is a what? Say again? It's a, the stone is a kingdom that smashes, like I about smashed the flower, that smashes this statue which represents kingdoms. And it says, God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and this kingdom, look what it says, it will never be destroyed. This stone, it says, was made without hands, which that term refers to something that is not man-made. 
It refers to something that God made. And this kingdom is a kingdom that God sets up, and it smashes all the kingdoms previous to it. It smashes all the kingdoms, and it lasts forever, and it extends to the very corners, the very corners of the earth. All right, that's the kingdom that is being described here. Now, we know that a kingdom has a king, right? So this is just a description of the kingdom. But as, you, as, you've, as we've read throughout the Old Testament that this kingdom has a ruler, a king. And he's described in other parts, and we'll read a little bit more about that in a minute. Look at Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Verse 13. Now, in Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream. Now, remember, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue, an image. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream. And basically, Daniel's dream and Nebuchadnezzar's dream are the same dream. Different images, but the same meaning. Instead of seeing a statue, Daniel sees beasts, animals, creatures, right? And in verse 13, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Okay, pause there. The term Son of Man is the most common way that the Lord Jesus Christ referred to Himself. Not Son of God, not Jesus, not Christ. When he talked about himself, he almost often used the term Son of Man. Do you know why? Because it's a prophetic term based upon this. Now look at this, but look at what it says. Now we know that Jesus, the Son of Man, he constantly referred to himself as such, was born in Bethlehem. We know all the things he did we read in the Gospels, but what is the description of the Son of Man here? One like unto the son of one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed that is the same description as the great stone that turned into a mountain that filled the earth in Daniel chapter 2. It's the same one. But here the emphasis is upon the king. Now, I want to ask you a question. How does this king arrive for this kingdom? Not a trick question. How does this king arrive? He comes down from heaven. That's what the, the verse says, right? He comes down. His arrival is not in Bethlehem. His arrival is from the air. He comes down. <clears throat> That's an important distinction. This is the first time in the Bible in which what we call the second coming of Christ is described in its character, in its nature. We, we, read about, we read about the king, we read about the kingdom, read about the glory and the, the effects of nature and all these other things, 
But how the king returns, this is the first time it's mentioned. Okay? Now, if you compare this in Daniel chapter 7 with the book of Revelation, here's what you find. You find that there are, there are many very, very close similarities between the two. The descriptions are, are almost the same. Okay, Here's why that's important. The book of Revelation, if you read commentaries, a lot of people describe the book of Revelation as, you know, the first thing they say, written by John in, you know, AD 90 or whatever. And they say, this is the most mysterious and hard to understand book that's ever been written and things like that. that that's, what they, that's what they describe. And those people that describe that are usually millennialists because the vivid descriptions their theological paradigm prevents them from taking at face value. Okay, so they have to figure out all the symbolism and all that stuff. And there's some difficult things in Revelation, no doubt. But, but what is obvious is what is described in Daniel and what is described in Revelation are very similar. So that tells us then that the book of Revelation is to be interpreted literally, except where the symbolism is actually clearly defined. And that also tells us that the book of Revelation is future because none of these things have happened. Some, did you know that some people take the book of Revelation as all of it is in the past? But see, this is why we compare Scripture with Scripture. And when you start to see things overlapping, it helps you to understand, all right, now, I'm, now I know kind of where this is going. All right, look at Micah chapter 5. Micah, after Jonah. So in, in Daniel, Daniel sees this, once again, the figure in the kingdom, the figure in the kingdom. We see that he sees this figure called the Son of Man who descends from heaven. You think glory, you think power, and he's given a kingdom and that kingdom is over the whole world. We've seen that described in various ways in, uh, in the Old Testament. We've read those. Now in Micah chapter 5, look what it says, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is also talking about the arrival of this figure. Right? And how do we know this is true? This is true in the Jews' mind too, because in the Jews' mind, remember when, when Herod, Herod's demanded of the Jews when, when, the, when there was rumor about Jesus being born, he demanded where Christ should be born. And what was the answer? The Jews answered and said, in Bethlehem. And then they, not Matthew, they quoted Micah. And they said, because of this verse. So there's a contrast. The, the figure in the Old Testament is said to be born in Bethlehem. And the figure in the Old Testament is also said 
to come to descend from heaven. All right, look at Zechariah, if you would. Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 8. says this, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Before I, I uh, pointed out the, the plant of renown, this figure of using a plant, this is the branch. This occurs, and we read this a number of times in Jeremiah. The branch is one of the references to the the figure, the king, that's prophesied. Here it's found in Zechariah, but notice the other word, the servant, the branch. Now, the word servant is significant because in Isaiah, chapters 42 and 52 and 3, the servant of the Lord is also mentioned. This is, a, once again, the figure, this prophesied person. And in chapter 42, his meekness is described. And that's confirmed in the book of Matthew. And in chapter 52 and 3, his sufferings are described, the servant. And now, the servant is identified with the branch. Same person. All right, now look at Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 12. says this, And speak unto him, saying, thus, saith, thus, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, same book, same person, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. We talked about the presence of the temple in that kingdom previously. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest. Upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Here's the office of Jesus Christ as priest and king in this verse. But again, the branch, the figure that is described in the Old Testament, the promised figure. <clears throat> Notice the branch is the king. This is the king of the same kingdom that was described in Daniel. Now look at one more passage, Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9. We'll finish with this one. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly, and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Now, pause here a second. When was this fulfilled? The king? This is the same figure we've been reading about for the last two weeks. 
This is the figure described in the Old Testament prophets. We call him Jesus Christ, right? Here he's described as riding on, on, a, on a donkey coming into to Jerusalem upon a donkey. Jesus did that literally in Matthew 21. But look at what it says of him also. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. That's the same kingdom in Daniel. An, a perpetual kingdom that extends the world over. Now, why am I telling you all this? And there are other passages we could read, but for time's sake, we don't need to belabor all that. But here's the thing we need to understand. When Jesus Christ arrived, what was in the Jews' mind is a king is coming with a kingdom and all the enemies of Israel will be put down. All the Jews will be put back in their land. He will build a temple and his kingdom will be a righteous kingdom that will span the entire world. That was what was in their mind, and rightly so. But now we know that in this, you see two comings. You see a coming from heaven, and you see a lowly coming from Bethlehem. You see both. The same figure. You see both. Now, how does that relate to our study on the second coming? Because on the, in retrospect, we know that Jesus has already come the first time and fulfilled every one of the prophecies of his meek and lowly coming from Bethlehem, riding the donkey, all of those things. But what in the same passages of Scripture that describe his, his kingdom, describe his lowly coming. But what is yet unfulfilled? What is yet unfulfilled is this glorious coming with the kingdom. And that encompasses the second coming of Christ. Just as the first part of that was, was prophesied and described and fulfilled literally, so the second part will also be fulfilled literally. The same things we've read throughout the Old Testament will be fulfilled. And that is, in essence, the root and the foundation of the second coming of Christ. And that's what we want to dive into, the specifics of that. Let's pray.